three, two, one. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This is our first show of 2023. It's January 6th, so this is our first edition for the new year. So even though it was a week ago, Happy New Year to everyone out there. Hope 2023 is going to be a a good year for you or a great year for you. Rather than doing a, a look back over 2022, which is already passed, I think we'll start the first episode uh, this year with kind of a look ahead, sort of a sneak preview, if you will, of 2023 and what we think that might hold. Not me uh, trying to say I have a crystal ball and predicting things that are going to happen, but rather just a um, look at the trends that were started last year and where those trends or where we think those trends are headed and where they might go. Just a real quick recap uh, about last year. We aimed for Excuse me. We aimed for 26 shows last year, about one every two weeks, and we ended up with 33, I think. So we exceeded our expectations in terms of production uh, for last year, which is a good thing. This year will be a little bit different in terms of how many, how many times we do the show or how frequently we do a broadcast because I am also the national podcast host for VFRL, which is Veterans for Responsible Leadership, and we're really going to kick that up another level this year in terms of the number of guests we have. Many of those are going to be high-profile guests, and we're going to be featured on a major publicity platform, which as soon as I have authorization, I'll announce what that is. Um, But it gets a a, a pretty large uh, amount of attention. It has a very large digital and online footprint uh, in the tens and hundreds of thousands of views per day category. So I will be devoting quite a bit of time to that podcast. In addition, I also host the podcast for the Big Sandy Heritage Center Museum here in Pikeville. So because I have two other podcasts to do, I may not be able to do this one with the same frequency that I want to. Um, I really want to do one a week, and that's this year, and that's that's what I may aim for. But I, I doubt that I'll get there simply because uh, of the uh, the commitments that I have to the other uh, productions and the other broadcasts, which which requires a lot of scheduling and prep work and research and formatting to get ready to do those. So I won't have as much time um, to do this. I'd like to not drop below once every other week this year, and, and, and that's my, my you know baseline target. Um, so we'll see how, we'll see how it goes. So if sometimes you know the show gets posted at irregular intervals, um, that's the reason why. It's because of all the other work that I'm doing for VFRL and for the museum. Uh, on their broadcasts. But looking at 2023, you know, um, <laughs> we, we we were complaining, I guess, the last couple of years that we, we every time we turn around, there's something historic that happened. And I think that's the case this year with the um, ongoing controversy over who's going to be the Speaker of the House in Washington. And just a little bit of historical context. So the last time that happened was in 1923, and a couple of things about that year were different from this circumstance, just for context. Then, at that point in time, the House did not uh, meet for the first time until March after the elections were over. And then once they set the rules and selected a speaker, they didn't get back together to do um, their first formal sessions until that December. So almost 13 months had passed. 
And during those 13 months in 1923, President Warren Harding had died and Calvin Coolidge had become president. So a lot had changed, a lot of time had passed. And when they took the first vote for speaker, it was an almost even split. There was uh, two individuals. It was also at that time a Republican majority. And Frederick Gillett of Massachusetts was the top vote getter, I think, with 197. He had a, a, a rival from Tennessee who had 195 votes on that first ballot. So they didn't get a speaker either on their first try. They took nine rounds of voting over the period over a period of two days to reach an agreement with the um, within the Republican Party to elect a speaker. And, and Frederick Gillett actually ended up winning that. He was already the speaker, so he ended up winning another term. Most of that dispute had to do with the rules and what they would, how the committees would function. And so once they resolved that, they ended up getting a speaker in 1923. Even though we've already gone uh, beyond that uh, ninth round of balloting this year, I, I suspect that McCarthy will end up winning. It, it's and, and if for no other reason, from, from my point of view, I, I don't know who else could get um, enough votes to come across the line. You know, I think it's pretty unlikely that Republicans would, would break and vote for Hakeem Jeffries. I also think it's pretty unlikely that Democrats, even blue dog Democrats, who are centrist and more moderate, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that they would break and vote for McCarthy. So at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the, the deal-making between um, the uh, what you would call, I guess, the conservative wing of the Republican Party and then the, the Freedom Caucus. And uh, what they want is similar to what was uh, wanted in 1923, and that is different rules for how to proceed. You know, when the House gets together the first time, when a new Congress is elected, even if the members who, who serve were in it before, it's still a new Congress. And the first thing they do uh, after selecting a speaker is to just agree on a rules package. So the House determines its own operating rules. Like nobody else can force them to decide what their rules are. The president can't, Senate can't, the courts can't. The, uh, the House of Representatives is, in that sense, an entity unto itself. And so it, they decide what the rules are, which means how many people are required to um, make a motion to uh, challenge the current speaker, for example. And I think that's one of the items that's under contention right now. Uh, the Freedom Caucus wanted that threshold to be lowered to five, which, if you think about it, I hope that uh, McCarthy does not agree to that. That's a terrible, absolutely terrible idea. And it's, it's contrary to the entire way the House functions. It's a 435-person chamber. And there's no way that five in any sense of the uh, imagination could ever represent a, a majority or anything even close to it. Excuse me. So, you know, the idea that five people um, could decide that they want to make a motion that the entire House has to now stop what they're doing and address is, is really kind of silly. And so I, I hope he doesn't, uh, does not give in to that, even if it means we have to go on longer uh, without having a speaker. That, because that's just a, a, a terrible rule. And once you start giving in to those kind of demands, where does it stop? Um, what will be the next thing that they want that's that's equally unreasonable and equally anti-democratic? And it is a bad thing that the House doesn't have a speaker yet. I'm not rubbing my hands with glee or laughing or mocking or um, doing any of those things. You know, I, I know in an adversarial political system, which we have, um, when your opponent stumbles, it's uh, very natural to, to kind of seize on that for your own um, own agendas and own uh, purposes. But m my point is it, it's bad for the country uh, not to have a Speaker of the House and not to have a House that's functioning. You know, if an enemy attacked us right now, we could not issue a declaration of war because the House isn't able to do that. If there was another natural disaster that happened today, 
the House could not appropriate any funding for it because they can't function. So it's, it's not a good thing to not have a House of Representatives. That, that's bad for the country. Um, you know, back in 2020, we told our, our friends in the Republican Party that, that Biden had the votes. He was the winner, and they should respect that. And so the same advice goes for my friends in the Democratic Party today. In, in the House, the Republicans have the votes. They have the majority. So we have to respect that. And uh, certainly we can. everyone's free to criticize what they do with that majority, um, just as um, folks were free to criticize what President Biden has done with his time in office. But the fact that they got the votes and they have the majority and they control those offices is not, up to dis- is not open to dispute. So you have to respect that. And I hope that they come to a resolution sooner rather than later. It doesn't bode well, however, for next year. You know, you, you think about something as complicated and contentious as a, as a budget. And if you're unable to get your, your ducks lined up for something as simple as a speaker vote, which you've had two months to prepare for. By the way, the election was November. It's Dece- it's January 6th. And so that that's two months to prepare for this. So there's no reason not to have your ducks lined up with that much time to prepare, and they didn't. So that doesn't bode well. I mean, you, I think we could well see this time next year uh, a, house, a shutdown of the government prolonged because um, there's, there's no, no ability to get uh, agreement on what a budget should be. And... All the horse trading and dealing that has to go on to make those things happen, that typically takes place, you know, when the cameras aren't on. And that's just just the nature of of politics. That's the way it's supposed to be. You can argue one deal or another is good, bad, or or indifferent. But when when the time comes to to fund the government, that is a core function of the House of Representatives. They're supposed to do that. It's their job. All spending bills must originate in the House of Representatives. That's per the Constitution. So in order for any of the federal government agencies, including our military, to function, they have to have a budget. And that budget has to come from the House of Representatives. It has to originate in the House of Representatives. So, you know, you look ahead to next year and you think, well, if we're in this same boat, if we have a weak speaker and a divided majority um, and a united opposition, those are, are, are elements that line up pretty nicely for a, a interruption of government service or a shutdown of the government. Now, it's happened before, and it's gone on for, for quite a bit of time, and, and we survived it, but it's never a good thing. It always causes problems for the agencies because they don't have the resources they need to do their job. And when you have sort of an ad hoc budget process where you get continuing resolution after continuing resolution, it makes it difficult on, on federal agencies to function in that environment because they don't know when their next round of funding is going to be or how much it's going to be. So you know, imagine if you're, if you're, you're trying to run your household budget and you didn't know what your income was going to be from, from, from week to week, right? And I know some people are, are in that situation, that that's a terrible situation, uh, and I'm not in any way trying to make light of that. I'm simply saying for, with something as big as the federal government, when you don't know what the, um, what the budget's going to be, that makes it really difficult to, to plan and execute your, your budget. I think there's there's some uh, there is an element of folks out there, um, especially supporters in the Freedom Caucus, who who simply want to shut the government down. They they think that's a good thing, and that's their goal. So they don't mind if there's um, lots of many more uh, incidents like this one where there's a public break and there's no resolution and things just grind to a halt. I, I think they're not only okay with that; they're openly cheering for it. And that's a bad thing, by the way. That that's not an intelligent way to get government spending under control, to simply stop uh, functioning altogether is a poor plan. That's a, that is an attempt to enforce a starvation budget 
on the federal government. Well, that won't work any better than a starvation diet does for individuals that are trying to lose weight. You know, it's easy for somebody to say, man, I'd like to lose 50 pounds or 100 pounds. I'm just not going to eat for the next three months. Well, mathematically, if you stopped eating for three months, yeah, sure enough, you'd, you'd probably lose 50 to 100 pounds, right? The numbers check out. But we know in reality, that's not going to happen. It's not possible for you to not eat for three months, right? It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not feasible. So that's not a valid plan. Same thing for budgeting in the federal government. Starvation budgets aren't going to work either. We can't just simply say, oh, well, we're just going to stop the government from working for six months or three months, and then we'll save all kinds of money. That's not how it works. That's not feasible. It's not going to work. And so that's a poor plan. I don't understand why we can't simply have an across-the-board, step-by-step budget reduction that goes a couple of percentage points a year, say 5%. Maybe that's too much, but across the board. So everybody shares the pain equally. So we have a 5% overall reduction of federal spending this year. And then next year, we do another 5%. And next year, we do maybe 3%. And so you gradually step it back until it gets under control. I don't disagree that, that's, that federal spending is out of control. What I disagree with is the way they're trying to go about correcting the problem because it's not working. Just like, just like the person who wants to lose 50, 100 pounds, try to go on a starvation diet, it doesn't work. You should talk them out of it. It's a bad idea. It's dangerous, and it's not going to work. Same thing with starvation budgets. So we should have a gradual step-by-step -step approach uh, to step down spending back to reasonable levels until we get that under control. And we can have a good, earnest discussion about what that is and how much that should be. But the across-the-board reduction is a good idea because it allows the pain to be shared equally by everyone. We can avoid what always happens. Someone will say, well, let's just uh, cut defense spending by 50% and leave everything else intact. Nope, let's, the opposition will say, nope, let's cut entitlement spending by a certain percentage and leave everything else intact. And then it just comes down to an argument over which one of those programs is more valuable or invaluable and which ones aren't. And that inevitably leads to political gridlock or stalemate. They give up and we just end up uh, funding everything pretty much at the current level. That's what's been going on for, for quite some time. We've seen this before. So I don't know why we can't just do an across-the-board uh, budget reduction step by step gradually bring it back under control just like a person seeking to lose weight would gradually start reducing their caloric intake you would gradually cut back you want to lose uh, one to two pounds a week yeah, that's the standard we use by the way in the military that that you can the medical authorities tell us that's you know pretty much the upper limits of what you can safely lose um, in that period of time but if you sustain that over a long period of time, you can see dramatic results. You just can't get dramatic results overnight. It's not possible and it's not safe. So same thing for the budget. I don't. We could, let's just step it down, reduce the budget a little bit at a time, and then over over the long haul, we've made significant um, improvements. But I, I would expect to see this time next year uh, quite a bit of turmoil, chaos in the House as well as government shutdowns. I think it's almost certain that we'll see one next year. Hope I'm wrong. Um, but in, in terms of the national legislature, um, wow, yeah, I think we'll probably uh, see McCarthy win eventually, and we'll also see a diminished speaker, and he'll be more vulnerable to threats of this kind next year from his, from his own party, and we'll likely have a problems passing a budget, if not uh, the inability to pass one leading to government shutdowns. Overseas, um, of course, the war in Ukraine was the number one story of 2022. That's going to continue. Um, over the course of the next year, it doesn't appear there's any end in sight to that. And the reason being, neither side is really willing to make any sort of concessions or to, to earnestly engage in negotiations. 
The Russians want territorial concessions. The Ukrainians aren't willing to give them, and that's the bottom line. Um, the Russians want to keep the territory they have in the east. The Ukrainians say any territorial concessions are off the table. So I would expect hostilities there to keep going and even intensify as the winter continues and as Russia continues to target the Ukrainian power grid to try to turn off their lights and, and freeze them into submission, which isn't working, by the way. The Ukrainians are pretty uh, resourceful in repairing their their power grid and in finding ways to, to stay warm even in the, uh, the harsh winter without consistent electrical power. They seem to be more determined than ever to resist. And with the flow of arms and that willpower, the, the, the willpower of the Ukrainian people to continue to fight, combined with the arms and material they're getting from Europe and the United States, is going to enable Ukraine to stay in this fight for a very long period of time, uh, possibly indefinitely. So I, I would look for that to continue. Folks always talk about one city or the other uh, being conquered by Russian forces, then Ukrainian forces. You know, taking territories, one thing, holding it is something completely different. So I would not be surprised at all if certain places out there, Kherson or Kharkiv or other cities in Ukraine, would could change hands many times over the course of the next year. And, and that's simply due to the way that those forces are organized and the, the difficulty of holding territory that you've, that you've moved your forces into. You, you, when you expand your footprint, you make yourself more vulnerable to counterattack. And it's the Ukrainians have the home field advantage, and they've been using that very well with their knowledge of the terrain and their skill with uh, cyber warfare and their uh, flexibility, and, and uh, they've shown a, a good aptitude for quickly learning how to utilize the more advanced weapon systems that the U.S. and Europe have been sending, including the HIMARS, which is a precision artillery system. They've used that with deadly effect, and I expect that they'll continue doing that. I don't see the Russian government uh, changing their stance either. I think it's entirely possible that they'll keep sending more reinforcements, even if they're poorly trained and equipped, they'll keep sending more uh, forces into Ukraine over the, the course of 2023. So uh, I would expect to see, you know, unfortunately fighting there uh, continue. And um, that's bad for the, for the world because it, it's changed the international security landscape. We thought that we were, at, we were past, you know, the sort of great power wars, if you will, where large nations engaged in full-scale combat with, you know, with huge numbers of combatants and large numbers of cities being destroyed. We hadn't seen that in Europe since, you know, the end of the Second World War, and now it's back. And so that raises questions about whether or not we will see the same sort of thing happen in the Pacific region with Taiwan. And... One of the reasons why China has recently ratcheted up their show of force, which is when they fly planes over Taiwanese airspace or they send ships into their, uh, their territorial waters, uh, stay for a while, then leave. That's, that's what we call a show of force. In the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023 for the U.S. government and the, that's the defense budget, there is a provision called the Taiwanese Enhanced Resilience Act, TERA, T-E-R-A. And it allocates, in the form of grants, I think, about uh, up to $10 billion in funding for Taiwan's defense. And it also provides uh, or establishes provisions for them to get weapons more quickly. In other words, to acquire new weapon systems. So it's, it's designed to boost Taiwan's defensive capabilities. And so obviously that's, that's something that angered China. And I, I feel pretty confident. You know, I, I'm not inside the, the Chinese president's head or their government, but I think that their, their last show of force, the intended audience for that was us, because we, we allocated that as part of our defense budget to help Taiwan. And I think that was a response to that. The Chinese have also been watching 
what's going on in Ukraine, and they've seen how what was believed to be a quick and easy invasion turned into a, a, a year-long and, and still counting slog, uh, so pretty much a, a debacle for the Russians with, with massive loss of personnel and equipment and, and loss of face uh, on the world stage. And I think China has, has seen that and understood that, you know, that could happen to them in Taiwan because the Taiwanese situation would be even more difficult logistically. Uh, the Russians have, have a, a land border with Ukraine. They can just send troops over the road or over the bridges. The, that's not the case in Taiwan. There's about 100 miles of, of sea seawater between mainland China and the island of Taiwan. So you would have to have a maritime invasion force. You'd have to cross water, which makes it much, much more difficult logistically. So even though Taiwan is a much smaller piece of real estate, um, you have to cross water to get to it. And so the logistics of a Chinese invasion would be much more difficult than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so I think they've seen that, and that's sort of given them pause. Um, and I think that's one reason why they've, they've become even more interested in engaging in these shows, shows of force to try to intimidate Taiwan and the United States and to get what they want uh, that way rather than opting for a full-scale invasion. It's still possible. Our defense community believes that uh, China is likely to invade Taiwan in the next 10 years. That's an estimate that's based on a lot of factors that have been gathered by our, our intelligence community. Um, it's certainly possible that they could do that. Um, they certainly have the, the triad. They have means, motive, and opportunity, right? China has the motives. They have the opportunity. They have the means. So they certainly could invade um, Taiwan, which would have drastic repercussions for the world economy as and just to cite one example, you know, Taiwan is a, a top manufacturer of, of chips for, for computers and for cars and for planes and for everything that uses uh, chips. And so that would have a ripple effect through the global economy almost immediately. But my personal take is that the, the Chinese have observed Ukraine. That's given them pause. And I, I think they're, they're going to continue with shows of force, uh, maybe even bigger ones than what we've already seen. But I don't expect that they'll actually go through with a full-scale invasion. I thought that about Russia, too, and I was wrong. A lot of analysts were wrong. We thought Russia wouldn't invade Ukraine, and they did. Uh, so we could easily be wrong about China, but I, I still think that they've watched. Uh, they don't want to end up in a quagmire with a huge loss of, of life and equipment and, and money and treasure and prestige uh, with little to show for it uh, if, the, if things don't go well should they, should they undertake an invasion of Taiwan. But that's something we need to think about. Um, you know, great power conflict and great power war is back. And one of the things we, we are doing, and so are our allies, is we're drastically increasing our defense, our defense budget. So the U.S. defense budget this year by itself was, I think, over was $850 billion. So the omnibus bill that Congress passed uh, earlier, a couple weeks ago, uh, or, or in the end of 22, I can't remember, um, Defense spending was almost 50% of that bill, so that, that's a huge portion. If you add in the uh, military aid to Ukraine, uh, we're closing in on a trillion-dollar defense budget here in the United States. And we're not the only ones that are increasing defense spending. China is increasing defense spending. Our European allies now have drastically undertaken to increase their defense budgets. Germany, France, Britain. Uh, have all, and uh, the new countries that want in the NATO alliance, Sweden and Finland, have all increased or pledged to significantly increase their defense budget. What does that mean? Well, it essentially means we're in another arms race. 
And that's one of the factors that led to the outbreak of hostilities early in the 20th century. So, you know, 100 years ago, we have a similar circumstance in terms of arm race, arms race. All these countries doing massive defense spending and creating enormous militaries was one of the reasons why they became edged closer and closer to open conflict. And that contributed to the outbreak of World War I and World War II. So we don't want to see a repeat of that here in the 21st century. So preventing great power war should be a top priority of our federal government. And, you know, the defense community has an obligation to protect the country, but the advocate for peace is not the enemy of national defense. Think about it. What's the What could be more damaging to our national defense than a war with another major power? So if we can prevent that from happening, that's in our national interest. And we're not devoting the kind of resources to diplomacy that we need to. So the defense budget continues to grow enormously, far more than it, I think it needs to. And at the same time, the amount of resources that we're devoting to State Department and to our diplomatic corps is essentially not changed very much. So we don't have the same emphasis on diplomacy that we need to. Because if you can get by agreement what you would otherwise have to get by force of arms, which one's the better deal? I mean, it's no contest, right? Diplomacy is better. If you can accomplish your objectives by making a deal or getting an agreement, that's far better than accomplishing it through um, military force, through an invasion or otherwise uh, an armed conflict. So we need to renew our focus and renew our interest in diplomacy, which includes um, instead of uh, increasing the military budget so much, we should be increasing our, our diplomatic corps and, and training and hiring more diplomats and emphasizing that part because it's not inevitable that there has to be a war between Russia and the United States and NATO. It's not inevitable that there has to be a war between the U.S. and China in the Pacific. But if we don't focus any resources or set any strategic objectives to stop it, then those types of conflicts become more likely. And I expect as 2023 goes on that those types of conflicts will become more likely. And that's what we're going to see. So we need national policymakers who will, who will try to offset that by looking for ways to find diplomatic solutions to these types of problems to lower the intensity. You know, there's an old saying, you can't stick your hand into a boiling pot, right? You have to turn the temperature down first. And so that's what diplomacy can do. It can help turn the temperature down in areas or places where there's disputes that could lead to an armed conflict. Because our goal should be to avoid instigating or contributing to armed conflicts. And then once they've, if they start, we can't stop them from getting going, we need to try to end them as soon as possible. I, I wish I knew a way to do that in the example of Russia and Ukraine now that it's already underway, uh, getting that. Uh, that conflict to, to a peaceful end is going to be very difficult. It's going to be a monumental undertaking. And it may take, um, you know, you look at um, 11 rounds of failed voting in for the Speaker of the House. I mean, it could take 100 rounds of failed negotiations to get to a solution that all sides agree on. But we have to try. And so I, that's the direction I would like to see the government take and our policymakers in Washington take in 2023 because it's in our best interest um, and it's in the best interests of the international community as well. So there's just a couple things 
um, off the top of my head that I wanted to talk about a little bit here as we get started in 2023. There's lots of other stuff going on. Um, you know, we have the uh, General Assembly here in, in Kentucky. The uh, General Assembly is now meeting in Frankfurt to decide what their priorities will be for legislation. I would like to see, unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen. Um, even though the gov governor issued an executive order on, on medical marijuana, I don't think there's a, a counterpart to that in the legislature, and I wish there was, because it could be something that's very helpful to the people of Kentucky. It's something that the, the majority of Kentuckians absolutely support. The numbers prove it. It's, it's very high support, especially for, for medical marijuana. I mean, there's even a majority for recreational, but medical has, I think, 80% of the public uh, in support of that. So why the legislature is still dragging its feet on approving medical marijuana, I, I honestly don't know. Um, and here's, by the way, one of the reasons why it, it's so important to have that. You know, if you have someone who's who has post-traumatic stress, who's a veteran, who's been in combat, and they're thinking about committing suicide, you know, the time it takes to call a hotline or, or to, to take a, a traditional type of anti-anxiety or antidepressant uh, when you swallow those, it can take quite a bit of time before they kick in, and it could take quite a bit of time before you're able to get through to someone uh, for for help if you're calling a hotline or something. But if you have a marijuana handy, that and, and you and you smoke it, it the effect is immediate. It has an immediate impact. It's instant, and so that quickness, that ability for it to to change your the way you feel immediately, is something that can help prevent veteran suicide. So I, I would urge the state legislature to reconsider and to, to enact legislation that would legalize medical marijuana in the state of Kentucky because it will help our veterans and it will especially help prevent veterans suicide uh, here in the state of Kentucky. Other legislatures have already done that and the results speak for themselves. It, it's working in those other states and it could work here if our General Assembly would simply pass the legislation and uh, enacted into law because I know Governor Bashir would sign it, and so I hope that that happens. I don't expect to see that happen, unfortunately, but it needs to. It would be in the best interest of the state of Kentucky uh, for that to happen. That's all I really want to talk about for the first uh, 2023 episode. Um, I'm not sure when our first VFRL podcast will be available on the on on our on our new uh, host, which is our, our major publicity platform. When that is up, I will share that information. And I uh, hope everybody has a great new year. Thanks. Take care.